In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. In our first Brexit Republic of 2022, we should be reflecting on one year of full Brexit, but there's just too much going on when it comes to Boris Johnson and his partygate convulsions. We'll assess whether the man who promised to get Brexit done can cling to office and what it might mean for getting a resolution to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And given that Liz Truss, the new Brexit negotiator, is seen as a front-runner to replace Johnson, how heavily will a leadership challenge weigh on the protocol negotiations? And we'll also look at what impact Lord Frost's resignation will have on the process and whether his successor will manage to finally do a deal on the Irish Sea border. But first, I suppose we should wish our listeners a happy new year. We, we would have been back last week were it not for the fact that Myself and my entire family were in the COVID leper colony with matching viruses, the, the COVID von Trapps, as the Omongans were for the period of, of the seven-day isolation. Well, sorry to that's hear a, all that, but uh, anyway, an welcome to the image. club. I think everybody's had COVID at this stage and the COVID virus is getting COVID itself and uh, <laughs> you know, COVID upon COVID upon COVID. Um, yeah, I mean, even Lord Hannon himself, uh, uh, Lord Hannon of Brexit fame, uh, tweeting out today how 95% of British people now have antibodies uh, to COVID, uh, but presumably a big chunk of that acquired simply by being exposed to the virus. So uh, happy are we who have the antibodies and the vaccines and uh, everything else that has gone with COVID. But please, uh, can we put an end to it now? <laughs> I've had enough. Yeah, well, the, the restrictions are being lifted at, at six o'clock in Dublin. We're going to hear the full details of how the COVID restrictions will be lifted. Tony, I don't know how things are with you in Belgium. It seems to be still quite the thing. Yeah, I mean, we've uh, we, we've had quite bad restrictions over the past couple of years, but actually you wouldn't really notice them too much. I mean, people are still wearing masks in, in shops and public transport, but hospitality sector has still been quite sort of buoyant uh, over the past um, month or two, actually stretching right back to last spring haven't been too many drastic uh, cutbacks in, in terms of lockdowns, but still very high numbers in, in Belgium. But again, like Ireland, no major impact on the hospitalizations or, or the death rates. They've, they've been relatively manageable, right. if that's not, not too uh, callous a kind of way to put it. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't sense here that we're having the great sort of foghorn moment that you're going to have in Dublin at six o'clock uh, this evening. Yeah, well, I mean, we've, we might see the back of restrictions, but I suppose to go back to the last episode of last year, we were just out the gate on the 17th of January and the British government saw the back of somebody else. Lord Frost resigned and for reasons actually almost entirely divorced from his own brief, he was appointed to the cabinet as a mainly the Brexit supremo and resigned from the cabinet citing 
basically everything but Brexit, Sean. Yeah, and especially COVID, would you believe? Uh, he uh, disagreed with COVID policy, at least that's what he was saying uh, in public. He said he had never had any disagreements with Boris Johnson on Brexit policy, uh, but he did have disagreements on COVID policy. And he's been uh, taking to the social media and doing a few interviews since uh, the, the turn of the new year, again, hammering home this uh, COVID, uh, perhaps more libertarian approach to the management of the virus, in keeping with quite a lot of the other um, hardcore Brexiters uh, within the party, uh, people like Steve Baker uh, from the European Research Group within the Conservative Party, uh, who is also now behind the uh, Conservative Way Forward movement. Uh, this seems to be a group uh, that is uh, ready to uh, push the button on the ejector seat that uh, most prime ministers sit upon. Uh, Conservative Prime Minister, certainly. And uh, he has this website ready to go right. uh, and activate as soon as there's a leadership challenge there. But back right. to, to Lord Frost, yeah, he was uh, going on the the Brexit, on the uh, COVID line, not the Brexit line. But as we had been teasing out uh, in the weeks leading up to uh, Christmas, there had been a change of policy uh, on the British side. Uh, it looks like a decision from the very top to go for a deal with the European Union and that might actually have been the breaker rather than COVID. Right, OK. The Conservative way forward is presumably proceed cautiously. The departure, David Frost, Tony, how is that greeted in Brussels? I suppose people hardly had the time to digest it before Christmas, but it may have improved appetites for Christmas dinners around tables in Brussels at the very least. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, he, he, he was not uh, much loved, I think it's fair to say, in Brussels or other European capitals. I think people were very surprised. I mean, I got a phone call from BBC Five Live on a Saturday night, which I don't normally get. Uh, and uh, that, that's when I first heard the news on the 18th of December. But yeah, some speculation that, yeah, he didn't he didn't get the cover he wanted on the European Court of Justice, that perhaps... Um, you know, there had been briefings, which I think we talked about before in the podcast, that his hard line on stripping out the European Court of Justice from the Northern Ireland Protocol was not being supported uh, by Boris Johnson. And there were some briefings to that effect that, well, OK, if there's a point of law in the operation of the protocol or point of European law, then uh, yes, of course, the European Court of Justice can be the arbiter on that. But if there's actually a dispute between Britain and the EU over how the protocol is being run, then that would have to go to international arbitration. So that was a bit of a, a shift from Lord Frost's uh, original position, which of course is in the command paper from last July. And that command paper also said that EU institutions uh, should not have any role in the monitoring and arbitration of the protocol, including the European Commission. So, I mean, obviously that's a, that would be a non-starter for the EU, but things seem to have been shifting. I think some speculation that perhaps David Frost saw which way the wind was blowing with Partygate, with Boris Johnson's troubles. One senior Irish official I spoke to uh, last week was pointing out a speech that Lord Frost had made just before he resigned where he seemed to be praising Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, in quite sort of florid terms. So one wonders if he <laughs> could see which way uh, the wind was blowing right. and was thinking of preserving his own career trajectory right. uh, and that was why he jumped.
Right, as the Roman general said, praise more the rising sun than the setting one, Sean, and that. He, he has that in common with Dominic Cummings, I think, who has been somewhat of a fan, or at least not critical of Rishi Sunak. So how are we to see the departure of David Frost? as political opportunism or Brexit principle? Maybe he just realised that was it. He'd run into the uh, big brick wall of the European Union and its determination to protect its uh, own institutions, its own single market, its own customs union. I mean, you know, the, the EU has to deal with the USA, China, the whole world, really. And Britain is just another country. And, uh, you know, everybody's spoken before about having to, uh, the difficulty of trying to force the EU to do things it doesn't want to do. And uh, perhaps Lord Frost went for broke in that uh, command paper uh, that he uh, issued last July. Uh, threw in the kitchen sink and all, and realised sometime in November he wasn't going to get it. He'd be lucky to get uh, uh, what was on offer from the uh, European Commission in October, probably with a few sweeteners uh, on top of that, but changing things like Court of Justice, governance arrangements, the kind of sweeping changes that he was looking for. Um, the EU was not prepared to um, make changes there, and was making all the noises of being ready for uh, some kind of a trade war or trade dispute with Britain. And there was just so much other things starting to close in on the Prime Minister in particular uh, around last November uh, that I think he just decided, look, this is one fight we don't actually need to have. Uh, We can choose not to have this fight, so let's go and uh, do some kind of a deal with the European Union. And so the mood music, the change in the mood music after Christmas has been quite dramatic um, and it probably does increase the chances of doing a deal on the specifics of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the uh, customs, the trade facilitation issues, the SPS issues, all of that sort of stuff that we've talked about for you know, months, if not years, on this podcast. That sort of thing is in play at the moment. But the bigger issues, officially on the British side, it's all still on the table, but uh, unofficially uh, you know, if if they want to go and have a big fight with the EU, sure, they can go ahead and do that, uh, but it's going to be problematic for them. And they've just got so much else going on here uh, that needs attention. Yes. Uh, is it really worth dying on that particular hill? So much going on uh, in, in, in respect of policy or in respect of the endless revelations about the social life of office workers in various government departments that have come out drip by drip over the last, what is it now, six weeks? Are we six weeks into the Partygate scandal? I think it's a bit more. It's it's more like a seven, seven and a half at this stage. But yeah, I mean, the, the Partygate scandal is endlessly fascinating and a huge public appetite for it. There are a, a whole bunch of really serious policy issues there that were coming up on Boris Johnson as well, not the least of them being um, the inflation uh, situation, the cost of living, which is really uh, roaring in as a, a problem for him and will be even more so in April when tax rises kick in and uh, heating uh, charge costs increase because of the cap on those going to expire. So there's a lot of problems coming in in April, just ahead of local elections in May. So we had to deal with all that sort of stuff. There was the residue from the uh, Owen Patterson affair back in October. That's when they really started to turn against Boris Johnson. That's when the internal fighting uh, began in earnest. Uh, and it was at that point that led, that's why I date this this change in Brexit 
approach back to November because you know government's job is to have over the the horizon political radar uh, and see what's coming uh, further down the tracks and try and make course adjustments before they hit the turbulence and they could see these problems coming in and that's why I think they went on uh, changing on the, their Brexit policy but the party gate issue that just hit them uh, fair and square in the face uh, at the beginning of November and it has not relaxed or relented since then. We had a little bit of a quiet time over Christmas but then we're back hard at it again and you mentioned the D word earlier, Dom, Dominic Cummings very much uh, at the centre of these affairs. His uh, blog has been laying a trail of breadcrumbs leading people to various dates and emails and photographs uh, so he, people are he, he anticipating cheek, more he? and more things he <laughs> well he cheeky. does he's the original he's the original rule breaker on on brexit the barnard castle eye test man himself um <laughs> pointing the finger at everybody else he, and, he, he, and his own one-man you know, garden party for the press thereafter in which is he gave a rather unconvincing uh, explanation of his activities for which Boris Johnson provided Indeed, him with but cover. no drink was taken and it was all socially distanced yeah. um, however however yes he skates upon the thin ice but it doesn't really matter he's gone from Downing Street and now he's able to enjoy the dish of revenge served freezing cold right well before we get into David Frost's successor uh, that Tony on the issue of Partygate you were writing last week in an extended blog for RTE's website, which is still up and, and worth a read, that people are now pricing in the possible demise of Boris Johnson into their treatment of the protocol negotiations. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose on, in in one sense, I mean, if, if Boris Johnson goes, then, you know, that's a huge personality, you know, off off the stage and, you know, everything that he brought into Darning Street, you know, that vote leave culture, all of those 20 something advisors, that very militant, um, antagonistic, aggressive style personified in many ways by David Frost himself. Um, you know, that that could be a game changer. But uh, I, th- I think the way everyone here in Brussels is viewing the current travails of Boris Johnson is through the prism of can he can he stay on? If he stays on until May, which is seems to be uh, one particular prevailing piece of wisdom, can, can he devote any attention to the protocol? Can he uh, afford to lose the support of the European Research Group by cutting a deal with the European Union? I mean, one official I spoke to in Dublin said, don't underestimate um, Boris Johnson's hardline approach on this. Uh, apparently, Johnson has been telling anyone who would listen, including the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, and other EU leaders, um, forget Frosty, he's he's not the real hard man here. I'm the hard man, and uh, I, I take the strongest view on British sovereignty and the integrity of the UK internal market and, and territorial integrity and so on. Um, so that so that's one uh, way to look at it. The other way, of course, is to, to look at whether Liz Truss, who's now Johnson's successor, whether she can actually take um, a, a sort of a clear-eyed view of what's on the table and do a deal, or is that all going to be sucked into a leadership challenge and her need, in turn, to get the support of the European Research Group and, and those Tory backbenchers? I mean, before we get into that, it's probably worth just reminding people what's what's on the table. The UK brought out their command paper in July. 
sweeping changes to the protocol. The Commission said, OK, we're not renegotiating, but we'll listen to see what if there's any gaps that we can bridge. The Commission brought out their four proposals in October, completely blindsided the, the UK in terms of how that was presented. It was very well presented from a media perspective. And the EU has been trying to shift Britain away from their command paper and closer over to the EU's four proposals, one of which is on medicines, which has already been been, agree- been put forward by the EU. Um, and and that's really been where things were at before Christmas, a bit of a stalemate. The, the UK saying essentially there shouldn't be any checks or controls on goods that are clearly destined for Northern Ireland only. We should only be checking stuff that's going south of the border. Uh, we should just basically trust companies to tell us where they're sending stuff, what's in the pallet. The, the EU saying, well, in principle, we understand where you're coming from, but we do need to have some percentage of checks to make sure that on a risk analysis basis, we know that stuff in Northern Ireland are not strangely disappearing uh, across the border. So goods, customs, SPS checks, still very deadlocked. Um, and, you know, we, we, we wait to see if Liz Truss is going to make any substantive difference. And uh, I guess we can talk about her now and, and what, what she might bring to the party. Yeah, Sean, how she view, I mean, she has, to, her timeline is is obviously going to be dictated by Boris Johnson's chances if there is a leadership challenge, as Tony said her approach to these negotiations might be coloured by that. On the other hand, you know, she has other stuff on her plate that she may want to concentrate on where where there are bigger wins to be had on the global stage rather than getting bogged down in the protocol. Indeed, and uh, no issue more pressing than Ukraine uh, and the Russian uh, forces build up on the borders of Ukraine. Uh, That is a central issue Um, not just for uh, British foreign foreign policy, but for all European foreign policy. And that is inevitably going to be uh, using up an awful lot of government bandwidth. And as Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss will be right at the forefront uh, of British policy uh, on that issue. So how much time can she realistically devote to Brexit? Uh, Not a lot, frankly. Uh, And even without the Ukraine crisis going on, the foreign minister's brief is so wide-ranging Uh, particularly for uh, a large country like the UK with a lot of global interests, uh, finding time to be able to dig down uh, into the uh, micromanaging issues of uh, the protocol. Um, Frankly, I don't see how she can find that much time to get seriously in-depth on it. So she's going to be relying on her uh, team of officials. And now that this brief has largely switched back into the Foreign Office, who are the old pros, the old hands at dealing with the EU knowing how the system works and being quite good at smoothing their way through situations. I mean, the uh, EU team uh, were quite uh, impressed, I would say, uh, is the word, uh, by the approach of Liz Truss at the Foreign Office to inviting Mara Shevchevich to a meeting last week, uh, not in a a grim office building in London, but then at Chevening House in Sevenoaks. Uh, the country mansion uh, that comes with the uh, the job of British Foreign Secretary. So they were laying on the full trappings of British diplomacy and going about this uh, get-to-know-you meeting in the old-school way. Come down to the country house, spend the night, let's do lots of talking, have a nice meal with mm. salmon from Scotland and lamb from Wales and apple pie from Kent, nothing from Northern Ireland. However, 
um, best not to, to uh, keep some things off the agenda, I guess. It was held but, up at the border. Uh, yeah, they were very impressed with that, <laughs> despite the fact that the interior of Chevening House is decorated with masses and masses of weapons. There's swords and pistols and uh, muskets all over the walls, all over the ceilings, arrayed in circles around the chandeliers. It's quite a, uh, an impressive, if not slightly strange, sight. Uh, come uh, into us and let's talk peace. Here's my rooms full of weapons. Uh, but anyway, uh, they had a jolly old time down there, covered a lot of ground, and were very positive. Um, we caught up with um, Maraszewczewicz last week at the uh, Eurostar uh, station here in London, just before he jumped his train back. And uh, again, he was talking about the the good atmosphere in which the talks were being conducted. So yeah, new year, new beginning from both sides, both of them talking up the the prospects of some kind of a deal. And also Shevchevich very much saying they're concentrating on these practical issues and trying to get a deal on that first uh, of trade facilitation and then by implication, the other stuff, the Court of Justice, etc., that gets kicked into the long grass. The beginning of a beautiful friendship, maybe. Yeah, I mean, certainly that was the view in in Brussels. Shevchevich, Mr. Shevchevich has been briefing EU ambassadors and briefing uh, MEPs as well. He briefed MEPs in Strasbourg on Thursday on his meeting in Chevening House, again emphasising new, uh, atmos- better atmosphere, better tone, huge amount of appreciation by the EU side uh, for the hospitality. But actually, when you stripped back uh, all of the hospitality and and the the glowing smiles and uh, the new atmosphere, when it got down to substance, um, I'm afraid to say that the EU side were not uh, all that positive. The UK seemed to retreat to the positions of the command paper. Article 16 was mentioned, the European Court of Justice. Of course, Liz Truss, in her first substantive outing, wrote a piece for the Sunday Telegraph, where she again highlighted all the UK's demands, uh, a piece that could have been written by David Frost himself. Um, I mean, in, in terms of the optics, when he briefed MEPs in Strasbourg, uh, and there had been all these images of Mara Shevchevich and Liz, Fro- Liz Truss uh, walking around the lake at Chevening House and uh, being pictured uh, in the splendour. One MEP said, it's like Groundhog Day. Mara Shevchevich has been reliving the nightmare every single day on the protocol. He only breaks the cycle when he falls in love. Uh, and <laughs> this was, uh, this, this was uh, a, a particular reflection of how happy the two of them looked walking around the lake uh, in Kent. But I, I would have to say that since those initial briefings, the briefings out of Brussels have got a lot more negative. Um, and actually, I was just speaking to a, an official this morning who was at, at a briefing, and it looked like you know there were technical briefings this week. Uh, British officials were here in Brussels, and it seems that they had have now declined or been reluctant to talk about technical issues on the basis of the EU's proposals. They have been trying to push things back to the UK command paper. So I'm now, it being Friday today, I've now been getting the vibe from Brussels that things are actually going backwards and not forwards. And again, this is probably seen, although people are trying to speculate, this is probably seen 
as Liz Truss already trying to signal to the ERG that she's biddable uh, from their point of view and that she's not going to uh, absolutely be flexible uh, on the on the protocol. But we can hear more from uh, Jill Rutter now on Liz Truss's appointment. Uh, as the new Brexit negotiator, Jill Rutter, is with the UK Interchanging Europe think tank. She's a seasoned watcher of the British Civil Service, and here's what she's been telling me. Uh, Jill Rutter, very nice to talk to you. Thanks for joining Brexit Republic. You've been looking in some detail at the transition between David Frost and, and Liz Truss, who's now going to be taking up the very substantial reins of all of the Brexit issues. C- can you remind us, first of all, David Frost's role, all of the stuff that he had to do. You, you know, you've written a very thoughtful piece uh, on uh, the UK and Changing Europe website about um, all of uh, David Frost's, um, you know, empire. Uh, just remind us what he was responsible for before he uh, resigned. So you could really see David Frost as being a bit like Caesar with uh, an empire of three parts. So David Frost was responsible for managing the relationship with the European Union. And that meant he's the UK's chair of the Partnership Council, which oversees that big trade and cooperation agreement that was agreed last uh, in December 2020. And he's chair of the Joint Committee looking at the protocol, the withdrawal agreement more generally. And so he is the UK's opposite number to Maris Shevkovich, the, the commissioner there. But he also had two other bits um, in his empire. One was uh, the Border and Protocol Delivery Group, which was a sort of set of people in the uh, centre. You could almost see them as a bit of the overhang from doing the Brexit preparations, all that stuff that Michael Gove used to do while David Frost was off negotiating the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Uh, And they're the people sort of designed to be, you know, managing if you like, the logistics of implementing the new processes at the UK border, making sure that businesses are ready. And yeah, we've had some changes at the UK border in January with new um, requirements coming in for documentation. And we still have a further stage to go until we have a sort of fully functioning border between uh, Great Britain and the European Union uh, when the final set of uh, requirements come in now scheduled for the 1st of July. So that's the second part of his empire. The third part of his empire has been the subject of, you know, quite a lot of interest, particularly on the Brexit side of the uh, Conservative Party, the pro-Brexit side, and has been subject to outside recruitment, is they've been staffing up a thing called the Brexit Opportunities Unit under a director general, someone called B. Kilroy Nolan, who came back from the private sector, having previously worked in number 10. And they're sort of looking at, actually, how does the UK now it's got the regulatory freedom, which after all dictated both the form of the Northern Ireland Protocol and the distance from the EU embodied in the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Now we've got all those freedoms. What on earth do we do with them? And uh, and that unit uh, is still there. So what happened is when David Frost uh, left government, slightly accelerated by the fact that news of his departure leaked. It was announced that his Brexit responsibilities went to the Foreign Office. And, you know, a bit later, a journalist asked the Prime Minister's official spokesman, does that mean that everything that David Frost uh, did has gone to the Foreign Office? Because, you know, 
might be logical to run the relationship with the EU out of the Foreign Office, but it looks a bit weird for the Foreign Office to be responsible for repairing borders. That's a sort of HMRC, DEFRA, you know, our Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, our, our customs authorities sort of thing. It's a bit, bit out of the remit normally of the Foreign Office. And this big domestic agenda, sort of coordinating departments to get enthusiastic about free ports or new data laws, etc. That's not really the sort of thing the Foreign Office did. But anyway, before Christmas, the Prime Minister's official spokesman said, yeah, yeah all of it's going to the Foreign Office. But then uh, I was talking to a colleague in the Cabinet Office saying I thought this was a bit odd. He said, but that's not happened. That's not happening. Um, I went, really? And... Uh, and one of our UK and a changing Europe staff has actually just joined the Brexit Opportunities Unit. And so I said, you know, Nav, where are you working? And she said, well, at the moment we're still in the Cabinet Office. So uh, we don't really know what's happening to those Brexit, uh, the Brexit Opportunities or the Border and Protocol Delivery Group. So that's still subject to discussions uh, within government about where does that go? And I mean, is, is this ref- one of the- does this reflect uh, the possibility or reality that this took everybody by surprise, this resignation, and nobody knew how to shift all of these bits where? Well, I think the plan was initially that David Frost wouldn't go in December, he would go in January. And it may be that the idea was that they would sit down and think in those maybe it sort of came three weeks early and that they would use that bit of time to work through what in the UK we call UK government we call the MOG changes the machinery of government changes that were consequential on David Frost's um, departure now the Prime Minister obviously wanted to show there's not a gap and the most pressing issue of all of these was the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol so he needed to say well David Frost has gone oh he departs but Here's my new overlord on that. And it's Liz Truss. Lots of debates uh, in the UK about whether she's been handed a poisoned chalice or, you know, whether this is a chance for her to build back the Foreign Office, which has you know, seen a rather diminished role uh, over the last decade, where the Prime Minister, who's after all a foreign, former Foreign Secretary, I think thought they should lead the Brexit negotiations anyway. So has he just righted that, that wrong? Um, they didn't seem to have thought about the consequences of it, which is why I think they were caught a bit flat-footed on this. And the real problem, I think, is, as you'll have seen, if you anyone uh, watches any of the British press recently, Number 10's probably been a bit distracted um, with trying to work out quite how many parties they had and were any of them really parties uh, over the last couple of years. So, yeah. uh, so I don't think machinery of government changes about uh, this has been absolutely top of mind and it doesn't appear to have been sorted yet, though uh, I would expect an announcement you know, later this month. Well, it does mean that you know, for the first, um, first set piece over the protocol of the year, the first meeting with Marisevkovic, uh, he's coming over to uh, the UK and they meet at Chevening uh, to distinct upgrade. Uh, David Frost could offer him sandwiches or takeout pizza. I think that's what they offered Michelle Barnier all the time is takeout pizza in the basement of our business department. It's a bit of a grim meeting room. David Frost could offer them possibly a nice meeting room with some sandwiches in the cabinet office. But Liz Truss, as Foreign Secretary, gets used to one of these grace and favour homes. So they're 
going to wine and dine Marisette for Gitche. I'm not sure if it was David Frost's style to to uh, seduce his interlocutors with grandeur and and uh, luxuries. And maybe on that point, there's been a lot of attention on the different style between Liz Truss and David Frost and what difference that might make to the tortuous negotiations on the protocol. What's your own view? I think it's it's really difficult to say at the moment. Um, Liz Truss is a much more public figure. She's a much uh, much more senior cabinet figure. David Frost, um, you know, was clearly a creation of Boris Johnson. Was at the sort of lowest rank of the cabinet. Uh, Liz Truss is foreign secretary. Um, I think what does she have very strong views? She's a former Remainer turned Brexit embracer. She has a big eye for personal publicity. That was one of the things that characterised her tenure and her previous role at the Department for International Trade. She's very good at putting a positive spin on things, perhaps going beyond the substance. Um, uh, But she's also seen as one of the two contenders for the Conservative Party leadership. So one of the questions I think that everybody's been asking is, did David Frost really leave over a row about the protocol? He claims not. In his resignation letter, he said it was over the direction of government policy more generally, in particular over COVID restrictions, which he couldn't support, and over the uh, failure to deliver a low-tax, low-regulation economy. Could have said, well, why didn't you stay in cabinet to make some progress on that, mate? But you know, he decided decided to go um, rather than on the protocol per se. So I think one question is: Does the prime minister know where he wants the protocol to land? If he did, did he share that with Liz Truss and make sure she was on the same page as him before he asked her to take on responsibility? You might think that that was quite an important thing to do, um, but it's not clear that in the haste to move it to her that they did that. And I think the sort of you know the two sort of different views on where does Liz Truss want to play. It. Does she, as foreign secretary, with you know big issues about Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, China, does she really want to get bogged down in weeks and months of detailed negotiation over medicines, pets, uh, customs rules, checks, etc., all those detailed things of the Northern Ireland Protocol? Um, so, does she really want to move for a sort of swift agreement uh, so she can get on with the bigger issues of being foreign secretary and working with the EU and a whole bunch of other issues where uh, the UK and the European nations have a lot of common interests uh, in tense geopolitical times? Or is she looking at the mood on the Conservative backbenches where there's a lot of unhappiness with the protocol and a lot of people who want the UK to move on Article 16, and does she, with one eye on the prize of a future move potentially to number 10, if the Prime Minister falls, there's a Conservative leadership contest sometime this year, does she decide to play to them and, you know, show that, you know, she is no patsy either, and she's prepared to take as hard line as David Frost. David Frost is quite the hero to a lot of that sort of set of the Conservatives who fought very hard for the sort of Brexit that the UK now has uh, and Liz Truss, particularly as they may have some suspicions about her as as an original Remainer, so not one of them uh, from way back. 
does she want to sort of risk suggesting that she's a bit of a bit of a fluffy compromiser so we don't know how that will play out we'll know a lot more when we read the mood music her first outing on this was of course to take to the sort of you know standard style for uk negotiations to go and write a hardline article in the sunday telegraph um to just set this up saying she wouldn't hesitate to trigger uh, article 16 and you know she wasn't going to back down on the European court, but she actually used exactly the same formulation that David Frost was using, which is that the European court can't be the final arbiter, uh, which suggests some scope for compromise if you move to dispute resolution agreements more like that in the withdrawal agreement. Right. One observation that I heard from a senior Irish official was that David Frost didn't really have to do the kind of periscope look around, what are the implications of my hardline position on the protocol? Whereas, as Foreign Secretary Liz Truss will have to take account of collateral damage for the UK wider relationship and thinking with Washington, but also the the longer term relationship with the European Union. Do you think that will make a difference in how she approaches these negotiations? It might make a difference, but I mean, it's a bit of a condemnation of the UK government if it takes a change of personnel at the top to make a difference because you know the ultimate line should be that of the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister really really should be taking full account of what's good for Northern Ireland what's good for the stability and the political future of Northern Ireland in a very fragile place with the run-up to assembly elections obviously in May Uh, And he should have been taking account of those wider geopolitical uh, positions. So the prime minister, so we have two cabinet committees in the UK that look at the sort of Brexit aftermath. They've been renamed Global Britain Committees, but they actually are the sort of follow on to the EU exit committees as was. And the one that does strategy is a very high level committee. It's a very small committee, but Liz Truss was on it, but it's chaired by the prime minister. And that, I think, We haven't seen the new cabinet committee list, but one assumes that will continue. And that should have been the place that would be making all those sorts of decisions about strategically, what do we need that makes is good for the Northern Ireland economy, is good for the political settlement and stability of Northern Ireland, which really, really matters, and enables us to pursue the UK's wider foreign policy, whether it's relationships with the Biden administration, whether it's being able to make alliances with our European neighbours on important issues like Russia, on important issues like climate change, you know, the run up to the COP, the UK is still COP president until uh, the end of next year. So there are lots of sort of those wider issues that you would hope in a functioning government had already completely informed the collective line that David Frost was pursuing in the negotiations. Um, Of course, that may not have happened, and it may mean that Liz Truss brings a very different approach. And you would have thought that, you know, in so far as that sort of collective discussion hasn't happened properly, a foreign secretary coming to this should be able to see the EU relationship in a wider perspective than someone who was tunnel vision, narrow Brexit negotiator. Conversely, of course, David Frost was across all of the detail of this. uh, because he'd negotiated you know, the withdrawal agreement, uh, at least the protocol bits he'd been involved in, 
even if he wasn't a mad keen supporter of it. And he'd negotiated that entire trade and cooperation agreement. Liz Truss at her Department of International Trade was actually not part of those discussions at all, really interestingly, because the UK had taken the decision that the UK's biggest trade agreement, the one with the EU, would be negotiated by uh, by number 10, then transferred to the Cabinet Office, not by our bespoke trade department that Liz Truss had been heading. So while David Frost was in Brussels talking to Michel Barnier, Liz Truss was in Australia, in Japan, etc., you know, rolling over existing trade agreements and signing new ones. What, what do you think the impact of Boris Johnson's current travails over parties in Downing Street will have on his long-term thinking? I mean, assuming that he's, he's, he's not toppled in the short term, uh, which we can't discount. Um, you know, he, he's got a very difficult couple of months. In April, we've got the energy price cap being lifted. We've got tax rises, inflation. Uh, do you think that's going to soften his cough somewhat? Uh, he won't want perhaps to get into a trade war with the EU by triggering Article 16? I mean, you'd say the economic backdrop would mean he shouldn't want to trigger a trade war with the EU by triggering Article 16, because that would yet worsen the economy. And he's got a lot of people who are going around saying we need a low tax future. And some people would say, well, you're not going to help your low tax future if you knock down economic growth yet further. And uh, the shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, has started with this line that the reason that the Conservatives you know, are a high tax party, and we've seen very big tax rises, tax burden rising to levels you've not seen since the uh, early 1970s, is the reason they're a high tax party is because they're a low growth party. And you'd hope that Chancellor Isheku, who's been remarkably quiet about Brexit, um, uh, might be intervening to say, actually, we need business certainty and destabilisation of the economy is not a good thing. But I think it might very well play out in the other direction, because the thing that the prime minister knows he can easily get support of some of his most vocal critics on the back benches, particularly those who least like his approach to COVID, um, is by throwing them a bit of red meat EU bashing. And that plays very well. So if you want uh, the mass ranks of the um, backbenches there, you know, not the absences we saw in some of the uh, statements on uh, on parties, but if you want to, you know, energise your backbenches, uh, a bit of EU bashing, I'm afraid, is uh, a quite good short-term tactic in today's Conservative Party. So I think the real risk is if the Prime Minister sees the benefits of a compromise, you know, for purposes of Northern Ireland, for the purposes of wider geopolitical considerations, he might feel that he's in too politically weak a position to push that through his party. I mean, he, I'm sure, you know, would not face particular difficulties from uh, Labour, who's now adopted this slogan of making Brexit work. But, uh, but he might face quite considerable problems on the back benches. And one of the things he'll have his eye on is this famous number of letters that has to go in to the chairman of the 1922 committee, the Conservative Backbench Committee. So the trigger for a leadership no confidence vote in the Conservative Party, the sort of thing Theresa May faced after she pulled that first meaningful vote back in December 2018, is that 15% of Conservative uh, MPs write a letter to the chairman of the 1922 committee saying they have no confidence in the prime minister. And then he has to face a no confidence vote, which if he loses, 
he is then out. He can't restand against whichever candidate emerges. Okay, so as we enter 2022, we're surrounded by uh, triggers everywhere. <laughs> Not a very auspicious outlook. But I think uh, it's, a mine, it's a minefield through to, it's a really a minefield, I think, through to both the May Assembly elections. The other thing the Prime Minister will be looking at very, very nervously is their Assembly elections in Northern Ireland, which didn't have any elections last year, but they're big local elections uh, in England. And he's got a lot of nervous MPs who are making the calculation we backed Boris Johnson, not necessarily because we thought he was going to be a great prime minister, but because we thought he was a big election winner for us. That was vindicated in December 2019, came back with an astonishing majority then. But if they think that he's turned, and there's some suggestion, public opinion polling, now that it has turned, that he's turned from election asset to election liability, uh, then the prime minister could quite rapidly... Uh, find himself being ejected. Okay, we shall see. Liz, uh, Jill Rutter from the UK and Changing Europe, thanks so much for joining Brexit Republic. You're welcome. So that was Jill Rutter from the UK and Changing Europe think tank. Sean, has Liz Truss's approach to the protocol made any headlines at all in the UK or has it been buried neath the morass of Partygate so far? absolutely buried under Partygate, as have been most other stories, but this one uh, particularly deeply buried. And it, it was interesting, uh, Tony was mentioning just before that interview came up about the photographs uh, that were uh, released by uh, the uh, UK Foreign Office and, and through some of the news agencies. Uh, they only allowed stills photographers down to Chevening House uh, for this event. Um, but amongst all of the uh, smiling photographs, I did notice when you zoomed in on one of them, uh, sitting right behind Liz Truss uh, in the uh, initial opening uh, meetings of it uh, was Lord Frost's special advisor, Hugh Bennett, who uh, is obviously transferred across from the Frost team uh, to the uh, Truss team. And when, when we talk about uh, the article that uh, read like it could have been written by Lord Frost, well, uh, perhaps it might have been written by the guy who writes articles for Lord Frost uh, and, and knocks them into shape for publication. Uh, and that might give some clue as to why there's a, a bit of continuity there in terms of the hard line. Also, the uh, things that Tony has alluded to already, the fact that uh, there is uh, instability surrounding Boris Johnson and the very real prospect of a leadership challenge coming in the next couple of months. And the fact that Liz Truss is one of the uh, front runners. Uh, in that, always a dangerous position to be in at these times. But uh, we've seen for many months now uh, consistent polling in the Conservative Home uh, website amongst uh, Conservative members. Liz Truss, by far the most popular uh, member of the Cabinet uh, uh, amongst the ordinary voters uh, in the Conservative Party who will have some say uh, in who becomes the next leader. Interestingly enough, the second most popular member of the cabinet until he resigned at Christmas was Lord Frost. So that gives you some idea, I suspect, of feelings amongst the, the base in the party. Liz Truss has been reportedly uh, holding lots of meetings, fizz with Liz, uh, champagne with Liz. receptions, biz with Liz for business people, but fizz with Liz if you're a, a Tory backbencher, which of course is the all-important electorate, mm. um, potentially, uh, if Sir Graham Brady gets his right. 54 letters in the next week or so. If she uh, sells out on the Northern Ireland Protocol, the ERG might be calling it swizz with Liz. Swizz with Liz, we'll look for our money back, uh, etc. But interestingly, that that ERG are are very much the people who are pushing Boris Johnson at the moment 
on the uh, COVID issue um, from a, a fairly libertarian point of view, it should be said. But a lot of the attacks that are coming uh, on him uh, have been coming uh, from the ERG faction and the Spartans. Uh, one or two of them have uh, put their head above the parapet uh, and uh, taken a stand uh, on the party gate issue. Right. So it's it's fairly much the right of the party who are driving a lot of the uh, disloyalty to Boris Johnson. And then, of course, we had a, a former Brexit secretary, David Davis, indeed the first of the Brexit secretaries. Um, he uh, stood up in the House of Commons on Wednesday and in very forthright terms uh, called on Boris Johnson to resign. Invoking the, the almighty. words in the name of God, go. Yeah, Tony, um, whatever about the timetable on a Tory leadership contest, there are a, a couple of electoral timetables that have caused Maurice Shevchevich to talk about deadlines, which is, has been an unusual enough event to talk about deadlines in the discussion of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's he actually said he, he doesn't like to set deadlines, uh, but in some of the briefing that he's been giving in, in Brussels and to MEPs in Strasbourg this week, I think, you know, w whether he said this explicitly or not, I mean, there is definitely a sense that by the end of February, there has to be some kind of agreement uh, because otherwise it would be very difficult for the EU to be conducting protocol negotiations during the Northern Ireland uh, Assembly election campaign, which is due to kick off in, mm. in March. So this is something that, that Simon Coveney, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, raised uh, last year, late last year. And I think certainly Liz Truss raised this as well in her meeting with Mara Shevchevich in Chevening that this should really force the pace of the negotiations, the right. fact that these uh, this campaign would get underway. But it's a bit of a lose-lose situation for for the EU, in a sense, because they... I mean, I, I don't think Mara Shevchevich is going to completely fold and uh, accept the command paper as, as the basis for any deal, because that would be a complete renegotiation of the protocol. If they pause the negotiations to let the assembly elections campaign unfold without this sensitive thing going on in parallel then you know what do they do after how, how do they resume negotiations and you know you could see a situation where after the assembly elections the DUP would say well we're not going back into the executive unless the protocol is ripped up or radically changed. So uh, this, I think... Depending I think on the, the election in, result, of course. Depending on the election result, yeah. Um, but, I mean, either way, unionism is going to be um, a major part of the, the new executive, For sure. goes without saying. But, uh, you know, you can see the temptation of the DUP to capitalise on that moment if the protocol hasn't been resolved. Um, I mean, the view in Brussels is there's a deal there to be done if Liz Truss wants to do it, and it could be done by the end of February, but only if she engages, as they would see it, uh, with the EU's proposals, which right. they say is as far pretty much as the EU can go in terms of checks and controls. Which means it, every meeting is going to have to be pretty intensive between Mara Shevchevich and Liz Truss, Sean, because she's not going to be checking in on the same weekly basis every Friday as David Frost had done. She just doesn't have the bandwidth to do that in the role of Foreign Secretary when there are, as you said earlier, so many other competing foreign policy priorities going on. So there has to be significant movement every time they meet from here on into the end of February. So 
we should get our answer as to how things are going pretty soon on this. We should, but there's also a danger here of the talks uh, around the Northern Ireland Protocol getting bogged down, uh, not being able to make progress and poisoning relations once again uh, between the EU and UK, just at a time when they really ought to be working together, and particularly in the case of Liz Truss, uh, working together uh, to deal with the uh, crisis in Ukraine. Uh, so you can see a really damaging potential scenario here of lack of progress, lack of meeting of minds over the Northern Ireland Protocol, the uh, leadership uh, vacuum opening up uh, in Britain, uh, causing stasis on that policy, and that policy infecting in turn the policy, the foreign policy issue uh, of how you deal with Russia over Ukraine. So there's a right potential mess coming down the road here uh, in foreign policy terms, as well as the Northern Ireland um, political situation and the ongoing uh, drag on everybody's resources of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Okay. Yeah. So Liz Truss and Mara Shevchevich meeting on Monday, Tony. Anything else coming up on the Brexit calendar apart from that, or is that the main event of the week to come? Yeah, I mean, that's the main event. I mean, they're, they're, she, she's going to be in uh, Brussels at the same time as EU foreign ministers are here for a very critical uh, foreign affairs council. Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, is going to be joining by video conference. That's going to be dominated, of course, by Ukraine and who knows what may have happened on the borders of Ukraine and Russia between now and then. There, There is a bit of activity in the background when it comes to the there's such a thing as a EU-UK parliamentary assembly, which was essentially created under the trade and cooperation agreement that brings together the European Parliament and the the, um, the Houses of Parliament in the UK. Uh, the European Parliament has formed a delegation. It's been approved. 36 MEPs who will sit on this partnership uh, assembly. Um, the UK side haven't got their numbers done yet because there's been wrangling over what Northern Ireland and Scottish and Welsh MPs should be involved in that delegation uh, and they were the there was supposed to be a meeting of the European Parliament delegation and uh, British and EU officials on Monday uh, to update on the protocol talks but that's been cancelled because some of those officials are going to be at the technical talks with uh, Liz Truss I think the significance of next week, you know, just to reflect on what I was saying earlier about the technical talks they've had this week not looking very good. I think Mara Shevchevich is going to have to make quite a difficult decision next week in terms of his his tone. Is he going to? He's obviously cutting Liz Truss quite a bit of slack because she's new to the job. She has to read into the brief. But is he going to issue another kind of blandishment about? Good atmosphere, but still uh, a lot of work to do and uh, gaps remain. It's, it's a bit hard to say. Sean, there's another thing coming up in February, of course. We're, we're losing you from London to the United States. So this episode of Brexit Republic has, has somewhat of an air of an American wake about it. Well, it, it does. And, you know, I just want to say here and now rumours of the, my desire to go to a country where the supermarkets are stuffed full um, is not entirely true. I guess there's been some supply chain problems in America as well. But, uh, yeah, we've been certainly feeling the crunch here uh, in London. So, uh, yeah, the powers that be in RTE have decided to uh, send me to Washington to be the uh, new RTE correspondent over there. So uh, who knows what 
uh, sort of involvement I may have in Brexit Republic in the future, if any. Uh, but then again, Rich, it's a bit like that godfather scene, isn't it? I mean, just when you think you're out, they drag you back in again. So <laughs> anything is possible in Brexit world. Um, <laughs> so we'll see what happens in the coming months. But yeah, you'll get another week or two out of me on this beat, I suspect. Yeah, well, no doubt. And if uh, the UK decides in its wisdom to send Anne-Marie Trevelyan over to have further dealings with US counterparts in order to secure a UK-US trade deal and Brexit comes up on that, no doubt you'll be able to fill us in on the details of that, at least from the point of view of people who take an interest in Ireland on the Hill anyway. It certainly will. Uh, there is interest there and uh, it has been affecting trade issues. In fact, one of the American trade ministers declined an invitation last week to come to Britain to uh, discuss the uh, steel sanctions which are still being applied on uh, British steel exports to America even though they've been dropped against the EU relating back wasn't that to the Airbus Boeing disputes or something things from ancient history but anyway some of these things can drag on for an awfully long time Uh, meanwhile of course here in Britain next week all eyes are on Partygate that's the thing that everybody will be looking out for Um, rumours that the Sue Gray this senior civil servant and former pub landlady in Newry uh, will be Uh, delivering her report which will be pivotal for Boris Johnson so we can expect the tension to ratchet up uh, next week in uh, political right. uh, Britain, uh, all in, all eyes will be on Westminster, and because they're not, uh, because all eyes will be on Westminster, they're not on other places like Dover and the A20, where we're seeing constant reports. And I'm going to have to go down and check this one out and see for myself. I, I, I suspect, and maybe Tony on the other side, uh, but huge queues building up at the ferry ports, uh, going from Britain into France because of the customs uh, situation there. They have to get all their papers in play but also uh, since january 1st the application of full customs regime on the british side means you're getting very big queues in france and the most of the drivers that i'm seeing uh, on social media are talking about a six hour delay on either side from, from joining the back of the queue to getting up to the point where they would start to form up to get onto the ferries uh, and uh, you know that's 12 hours to go back and forth across the channel a crossing that takes 35 minutes on the channel tunnel 90 minutes on the boats uh, this is the real cost that's being imposed on the freight industry uh, by brexit and the reimposition of these uh, customs checks uh, that are, are consequential on brexit happening and of course for the drivers they get paid by the kilometre, not by the hour that they're sitting in their cabs. So they're going crazy down there. Uh, bad situation. All right. OK, well, that's it for this week. From me, Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RTE's Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening. Later we had our first taste of whiskey 
There was uncles giving lectures on ancient Irish history The men all started telling jokes and the women they got frisky With five o'clock in the evening every bastard there was pissy Very well gone away, there's nothing left to say Farewell to New York City boys, the Boston NPA He took them out with a well on cloud and I often heard him say I'm a freeborn man of the USA When the fight was right, so I sent him to the war Very well gone away, there's nothing left to say West Archer Joe and an errand gone, my love's in America The calling of the rosary, Spanish wine from far away I'm a freeborn man of the USA Love you, I always did, I always will Very well gone away There's nothing left to say But to say adieu to your eyes as blue As the water in the bay To pitch and toward 